Sentire Media. Hello everyone, you're listening to A History of Italy. Episode 97, Dante Alighieri and the Divine Comedy. Not everyone necessarily has a midlife crisis, but when they do, people react in different ways. There's the typical buy a motorcycle or sports car, taking up a new hobby, trying to get yourself back in shape, and so on. In the case of Dante Alighieri, he opted for a sort of travel book, shall we say? He even declared it was a midlife crisis. In the midst of the pathway of our life, I found myself in a dark forest. The Divine Comedy can indeed be seen as a voyage on many levels. First of all, it is the imagined physical voyage of a pilgrim through the realms of hell, through purgatory, and up to heaven. In this sense, we actually get a geographical description to go with the story. When Lucifer rebelled against God, he was cast down to earth, to the southern hemisphere. As he fell, the land on that side all moved to the north to get out of his way, except for a patch of it that stayed there to turn into the mountain of purgatory, which you will therefore find exactly opposite from the dark forest Dante enters into at the start of the story, which in turn was close to Jerusalem. How he got lost wandering around Tuscany and ended up near Jerusalem is beyond me. Then, after having gone through the centre of the earth through hell, from the mountain of purgatory you head up into heaven, once of course you've done your punishment for a few hundred years in said purgatory if you have been lucky, otherwise you just stay in hell for the rest of eternity. While we're on the topic of geography, Dante's description of the earth also allows us a digression into the whole flat earth business. You see, in the Middle Ages, they didn't believe that the earth was flat. Aside from the fact that many emperors and monarchs were depicted holding globes, all we have to do is look at Dante's description. As he nears the centre of hell, he sees Satan with his top part sticking out of the lake of ice, with his three mouths chomping on Judas, Brutus and Cassius. Virgil has Dante grab onto his neck and they climb down Lucifer, only to find as they get through the frozen lake, which is around his hips, that they are then climbing up and out of hell. So, that is the physical trip represented in the Divine Comedy, but it is also a trip into the human psyche, understanding the reasons why people have done what they have done, their thinking, their logic, and how they feel about the consequences they have had to pay for it. That is not all. The comedy is also a trip through history, exploring the history of the Italian peninsula mainly focusing on the century in which Dante was born, but 
also going back into antiquity with some of the legends and the monsters that he comes across. The idea of writing about travel was not revolutionary in Dante's time. Obviously, it was usually a pilgrimage and not sort of, you know, a trip to the seaside. We can find examples going as far back as Gregory the Great, who died in the early 7th century, and also writings closer to Dante's time, such as those of Mechtilde of Magdeburg, who, incidentally, may be the inspiration behind Donna Matilda, whom Dante meets in heaven, although some also say that this could be Matilda of Canossa, a strong defender of the church. Other influences for the comedy can be found in Virgil's own Aeneid, and the writings of Cicero, and in parts of the Bible, such as the second letter of Paul to the Corinthians, and of course, the Apocalypse. There was never any doubt about what the title of the work was supposed to be, for the poet himself mentions it. For example, in Canto 16 of Hell, in lines 127 to 128, he says... Per le note di questa commedia, lettor ti giuro. By the notes of this comedy, dear reader, I swear to you. So, the title, or at least the genre, was to be the comedy, with divine being added later, I believe by Boccaccio, although Dante does refer to it in heaven as his sacred poem. Obviously, the word comedy is a bit confusing for English speakers because Today we see a comedy film as something with Ben Stiller or Jack Black or the guy with the egg-shaped head whose name I really don't remember right now. However, in Italian, commedia is still closer to the original meaning. Well, if you want a film that makes you laugh in Italian, you would go for a film comico. The way I remember it, which is a bit reductive, is that a comedy has a happy ending and a tragedy a sad ending. Then obviously you have all the other elements of protagonists and antagonists and overcoming opposition and climaxes and so on, but happy ending and sad ending usually does the job for me. In this sense, you can say that the Divine Comedy has a happy ending, sorry for the spoiler, because not only does Dante get to see heaven, but he also gets back home alive. I'm not sure what any of this has to do with the original meaning of comedy from Greek, which is komos plus oda, which means a rustic canto, but anyway. The whole poem is in hendecasyllable verses, meaning verses with 11 syllables, with the stress on the 10th. The rhyme scheme is ABA, BCB, and so on. So, if we look at the start, we have Nel mezzo del cammin di nostra vita, Mi ritrovai per una selva oscura, che la dritta vi era smarrita. Ai, quanto a dir qual era la cosa dura, esta selva selvaggia e aspra e forte, che nel pensier rinnova la paura. So, vita, life, in line one, rhymes with smarrita, lost, in line three, while oscura, which means dark, in line two, rhymes with dura, hard, in line 4, and paura in line 6, and so on. So then the rhyme of line 5 would go on to rhyme with 7 and 9, and so on and so forth. Then there's the whole magical structure of the holy number 3, repeated with 
33 cantos in each of the three canticles, hell, purgatory and heaven, each ending with the word stelle, stars. We mentioned in the last episode that one of the storylines about Dante says that he had started with the comedy while still living in Florence, so before 1302, and that his wife, Gemma Donati, had sent the first seven cantos to her husband when he came back to Tuscany precisely in Lunigiana after his exile. However, the consensus is that Dante Ligieri started work on the comedy between 1304 and 1307 and finished Hell around 1309, also because the historical references in Hell, which are very current to the writer at times, go up to that year. Using the same sort of clue, you can place the writing of Purgatory up to around 1315 and the writing of Paradise up to around 1318, if not all the way almost to his death three years later in 1321. I would say that that is all we'll say specifically about Dante Alighieri's Divine Comedy. I have a confession to make. In high school, I sort of stopped paying attention after we got into Purgatory and everyone was getting nicer and holier, there were no naked people, no farting devils, no monsters, no fire and brimstone. At university instead, when I took Italian literature, the professor told me I should have spent a bit more time actually studying the content rather than writing my analysis in rhyme in an attempt at originality. I got away with a 22 out of 30 that time, and since you passed with an 18, I took it and ran. Incidentally, if you are looking for the farting devil, he is Barbaccia, and you find him at the end of Canto 21. Per l'argine sinistro volta dienno, ma prima avea ciascun la lingua stretta coi denti verso lor duca per cenno, ed elli avea del cul fatto trombetta. The devils had all turned to the left, but first they had put their tongues between their teeth towards their leader as a sign, and he used his arse as a trumpet. We could say a whole lot more about the Divine Comedy, but we would really have to do a whole podcast, and there are podcasts about the Divine Comedy. I in particular would like to point out one that I'm really enjoying, Dante's History by Malon Khan who does a really good job with the story, the background, the sound effects, and the whole lot. A really good show. That's Dante's History. Look it up. We are now going to turn our attention back to the man himself and see him to the end of his days and beyond, as well as talk a bit about the city he ended up in and where his earthly remains reside to this day after themselves going through various adventures. First, however, a word from our sponsor. Whether or not Dante received the copies of the comedy while in Lunigiana, or he started later, he continued to roam around in exile. He got some good news towards the end of 1308, when he found out that his arch-enemy and leader of the Black Guelphs in Florence, Dante, remember, was a white Guelph, had died. That was Corso Donati. 
His success had gotten to his head, and he was attempting to manoeuvre so as to make Florence his own personal dominion. The Florentines weren't having it, and he was condemned for treason and forced to flee by an angry mob. In his precipitous flight, he fell from his horse, got caught up in a stirrup, allowing his enemies to catch up with him and finish him off. It would be a while before Florence fell under the rule of a single family. It would take a certain Cosimo de' Medici to do that. Despite the turn of events, Dante's exile continued. He had a glimmer of hope, as we said, in 1310 with the descent of Holy Roman Emperor Henry VII, whom he met along with child Petrarch and his father when the emperor was in Pisa. One of Dante's other works, De Monarchia, explaining his political views, was written for Henry. As we know, it all came down to nothing. For the rest of his life, Dante would always look to the past rather than to the present. As well as the De Monarchia, Dante had also published early works such as a collection of poems in the Stil Novo style in his Canzoniere. He had tried his hand at a sort of encyclopedia, the Convivio, and had put down his thoughts on the vulgar language in a linguistic work called De Volgari Eloquencia. Later in his life, as well as the later parts of the comedy, he would also add the Epistole and the Egloge. After his stay back in Tuscany, never getting back to his native Florence, mind you, he returned to Verona, where he was also joined by his children. In this period, Verona was expanding rapidly under Can Grande della Scala, a series of wars against Parma, Padova and Treviso, to name a few, would soon put it in direct contact with Milan on one side and Venice on the other. In medieval Italy, this probably would not mean they shook hands and had a big party and set fixed and friendly borders. Not at all. We have said before, though, that Verona, with its new Dalla Scala rulers, was a very sumptuous and brash court that clashed with the difficult, rather reserved and snooty character of Dante. It is perhaps for this reason that he accepted, sometime after 1316, the invitation to go to a place that, like him, was more wrapped up in its past glory than in its sombre present, Ravenna. In the 13th century, the commune of Ravenna, officially under the influence of the Papal States, but really an independent commune, had slowly been taken over by the Ghibelline Traversari family. But from the castle of Polenta, the Da Polenta family had slowly started to increase their influence and in 1275, Guido da Polenta took over the city and was named Podesta. The da Polenta were aided in this by the Malatesta family, who, 20 years later, would become lords of Rimini. If I may digress again, I would really recommend visiting both Ravenna and Rimini, which are not usually on the main Italian destinations list. If you do, wouldn't you know it, I have an audio tour I have created for each one using the Voice Map app. If you go to either Ravenna or Rimini or both, they're only about an hour from each other, 
you can download the voice map app and download the respective tour and have me droning on at you as you walk around the city. Now, the Malatesta who helped the Da Polenta were Gianciotto and Paolo. Guido da Polenta gave his daughter Francesca's hand to Gianciotto, obviously the ugly one. Dante himself in his comedy is the only contemporary chronicler who tells us what happened next. Francesca would head out to the gardens with a nice book about Lancelot and his passion for Guinevere, and after a while along came her brother-in-law Paolo. They took to reading together, and then one thing led to another, and the two ended up being killed by Gian Giotto out of jealousy, and all three ended up in Dante's hell. Paolo and Francesca in the fifth canto, second circle, with those guilty of lust, while Gian Giotto, as Francesca predicts, would head all the way down to the seventh circle to those guilty of violence against their family, like Cain himself. Dante has a bit of a soft spot for Paolo and Francesca. He weeps for them and has them whooshing around the circle with the others guilty of lust as the only ones still together. Then, as he often does, he faints. I remember complaining in high school to a friend of mine about how wimpy Dante was, but then he pointed out that he was actually making his way through hell, so I should give him a bit of a break. Anyway, we said that the first da Polenta to rule Ravenna was Guido, known as the Elder because his grandson, and therefore nephew of Francesca, was the one who invited Dante to Ravenna. Perhaps thanks also to the soft spot that Dante had for his auntie. Not Dante's auntie, but uh, Guido da Polenta's auntie. Ravenna was where Dante lived out the rest of his days, left more or less in peace to his writings. He was on occasion sent on a diplomatic mission if it was of particular importance. It was coming back from one such mission to Venice that he fell ill with a fever, perhaps due to malaria, and on the night between the 13th and 14th of September, 1321, Dante Alighieri died. He had already reached a level of fame in his own time, but it would not be until around the 18th century that he would take his place in the Hall of Fame of international literature. One last thing. The story of Dante doesn't end with his life, and I'm not talking about his legacy living on. I mean the man's corpse. In 1519, almost 200 years after his death, Florence decided they wanted Dante back and sent a delegation to retrieve him. Some Franciscan monks in the monastery near Dante's tomb in Ravenna were having none of it. The poet's remains belonged to Ravenna. Florence had had their chance and they had exiled him. So, as the delegation from Florence was on its way, they made a hole on their side in the monastery through to the back of Dante's tomb and whisked him away. When the Florentines arrived, he was nowhere to be found, so they headed back. Unfortunately, everyone forgot where the remains were and they didn't show up again until 1865 while digging work was being done in a nearby garden. 
after the tomb they currently rest in had already been built and stayed empty for a bit. Since then, they were moved once more to avoid being bombed in the Second World War, but now he should have finished being moved around. The Florentines have forgiven both Dante and Ravenna, and now, once a year, they bring the oil that keeps the flame inside the tomb alight. We, in turn, can also put Dante Alighieri to rest and head on towards the rather complicated 14th century. Thanks very much to everyone for listening. Thanks in particular to my lovely Patreon supporters. I would like to start thanking from the Margarita Hack and Galileo Galilei level, Anthony G, Brian J, Selene, Chanel, Chris, David L, Dean V, Elizabeth, Greg, Ignazio, Jeffrey W, Old John in Milwaukee, Kevin, Marxist-Leninist-Sicilian, Neville, Paradise, Patricia Kappa, Peter W, Renee B, Roberta D, Rodney N, the Question Master, Rudy F, Scott L, Shelby and Stephen, and the Tippy Top Maria Montessori, and Dante Alighieri level, Paolo, Lisa K, JW, Andrew M, Brandon S, Maxime, David A, and of course, Sen. And welcome, welcome, welcome to new Patreon supporter, the Margarita Hack and Galileo Galilei level, Sam. Thank you, Sam, for your support, and welcome aboard. Remember, you can get in touch and ask about Dante, Italian history, or anything else at hello at ahistoryofitaly.com. The same URL, ahistoryofitaly.com, hosts the website where you can click through to social media, videos, or timelines and maps. And of course, you can head over to the support page, support on Patreon, or make a one-time donation on PayPal, for which I thank you very, very much. And until next time, thanks very much to everyone for listening and arrivederci. Sentire Media. Hey, podcast producers and show hosts. Do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Sentire Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy. And we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com, that's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com, and find out how to submit your show.